Well, let me start this morning with a top 10 list. Always kind of like these top 10 lists. Here are the top 10 ways to recognize that a person is excited about end times Bible prophecy. Ready? Number 10. They always ride with the top down on their convertible just in case of the rapture. Number nine, they never buy green bananas. Number eight, they've studied the birthmark on Gorbachev's forehead trying to detect a mark of the beast. (laughs) Number seven, barcode scanners make them nervous. Number six, every time Israel appears in the news, they try to figure out how it matches up with last day's prophecy. Number five, they refuse to cash their income tax refund check because it's made out in the amount of $666. Number four, they can remember more signs of the end times than they can the Ten Commandments. Not real good. Number three, they've actually tried various mathematical calculations to determine the identity of the Antichrist. Number two, their favorite book is left behind. And the number one way to know that you're excited about end times Bible prophecy, they get goosebumps every time they hear a trumpet blast. (laughs) And I have got to admit, I am one of those persons. When I think that I could be part of the generation that sees Jesus return to this earth, I get excited. Imagine with me, the trumpet blows. Then in a moment, in the twinkling, not a blink, in the twinkling of an eye, we're transformed. A metamorphosis occurs in the clouds. We peel off these mortal bodies and we model our immortality. And that's when our eyes open and we see Jesus. We'll hear him first. He roars like a lion. We see him enthroned and in glory. And yet when we look, he appears as a lamb that's been slain. His scars are still visible. We're instantly reminded of the cost of our forgiveness. And we're standing before his throne. An innumerable number of angels surround us. We join the redeemed of all the ages in singing, holy, holy, holy. At last, our struggle is over. Our tears are wiped away. Sorrow and pain are no more. Crowns are passed out. You see, the world we live in today is topsy-turvy. The good guy gets penalized while evil people get away with their crimes. Cancer and hurricanes named Sandy, can you imagine And terrorism, they strike indiscriminately. But when Jesus returns, he'll right all wrongs. Faith will be vindicated. Injustice will be avenged. Finally, Jesus will see to it that faith is rewarded and rebellion is punished. Jesus will turn this world right side up. And our prayers, your prayers and my prayers will be answered. Our cries for justice and vindication and righteousness and an end to evil will all be fulfilled. One day, Jesus will purge God's creation of all traces of sin and return it to a perfect utopia. We'll live forever in unbroken fellowship with our Savior who can't get excited over those prospects. Imagine a world where school 
where school teachers make seven figures and ball players play for the love of the game. <laughs> A world where greed and pride aren't seen as corporate policy. A world where rogue nations are made to serve the good of all mankind. Where child molesters get caught before they act. Where health insurance premiums don't get jacked up every January since no more sickness means no more health insurance. Where UN peacekeepers have nothing to do. And where neighborhood gangs rumble over which group will man the Salvation Army cattle at Christmas time. Imagine a world like that. That's the kind of world that Jesus will order when He returns to reign on this earth. And I, for one, can't wait. There is one heavenly reward that I would think every Christian should be in line to receive. As for eternal rewards, in my opinion, it's a gimme. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 lists the crown of righteousness. Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus gives this crown to all who have loved his appearing. I mean, who doesn't want to see Jesus return? We all should be excited about the appearing of our Lord Jesus. I have no doubt the revelation that John saw on the island of Patmos caused him to love the Lord's appearing. But in chapter 10, John has a deeply sobering experience. Afterwards, he's not as flippant about all that he's seen. John now realizes that darkness comes before daybreak and winter precedes spring and death occurs before resurrection and a wound has to be purged before it can heal and every birth requires labor pains. And as for the world we live in to be made right, wrongs have to be punished and wrongdoers have to be judged. For this is what John sees in chapters 8 and 9. Understand, John is still eager to hear the trumpet that signals our great escape. I have no doubt John is enraptured with the rapture. But first he hears a different set of trumpets, seven to be exact. And rather than the coming of Jesus, they signal the coming of judgment. John will never forget the joys of heaven, but he will also witness firsthand the horrors in man's future. That's where we begin here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now I've heard the crude suggestion that verse 1 proves there are no females in heaven since no woman could ever stay silent for 30 minutes. Shame on any pastor who would make such a suggestion. I would never. Actually, up until now, heaven has been quite loud. It's been quite a noisy place. Everywhere where people are falling down before God's throne, they're worshiping the Lamb. About the time one voice fades out, another praise erupts. But now, a holy hush falls over the halls of heaven. And for half an hour, it becomes so quiet you can hear a pin drop. It seems to me heaven is gasping over what happens next. Verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Now understand the structure of the judgments that come down as John sees them in Revelation. Seven seals are popped. 
then seven trumpets are blown, then seven bowls are poured out. Seven thunders are also mentioned, but not revealed. So here's what we have. Seals break, trumpets blast, bowls pour. And here the seventh seal becomes the seven trumpet judgments. We're told, then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Now, this heavenly angel is acting like a priest. In fact, what John calls angel, which is really just another word for messenger, could actually be the Lord Jesus. We know from the book of Hebrews that Jesus has a priestly ministry. He is our great high priest who serves before God in the heavenly temple. Well, here, this angel, he grabs the censer, the priestly censer that holds the incense, This censer is full of our prayers. It's full of prayers for truth and equity and justice and righteousness and fairness. It's full of prayers that were launched in response to life's hardships and heartaches. It's full of prayers that were prayed in your most desperate moments. It's full of prayers that even right now you think have gone unheeded. All your prayers... Your deepest feelings and longings now mix in this censer with the fire of God's wrath and they turn into action like popcorn that starts hopping out of the pan. Thunder claps and lightning strikes and the earth quakes. That's when this violent brew is tossed out onto the earth. The censer is emptied to censure the wicked. This is God's answer to our cry for a more righteous world. Did you hear about Uncle Sid? Well, after returning home from the war, he was arrested on a burglary charge and he was found guilty. But before the judge passed sentence, Sid's lawyer tried one more tactic. He said to the judge, he said, Your Honor, he said, my client did not break into the house. The living room window was open and so he inserted his right arm and he removed a few items. Now, my client's arm is not my client. So I don't think that you should punish him for an offense committed by one of his limbs. Well, the snooty judge, he thought about it for a moment, and he replied, well, that's an interesting argument. Tell you what I'll do. I'll follow your logic and sentence your defendant's arm to one year in prison. He can accompany the arm or not. That's up to him. That's when a big grin came over Sid's face. He calmly walked up to the judge and he removed his artificial arm. And he handed it to the dumbfounded judge and walked out of the courtroom with his lawyer. The two men went home laughing all the way. You know, there are a lot of folks today like Sid who've learned how to beat the system. You know, they just always seem to be able to avoid judgment. They don't pay their bills. They keep living in their... I don't know how they do it. They sin with impunity. Punishment always gets avoided. But I'm telling you, 
That's going to end when these trumpets blow. God will see to it that justice is served once and for all. And in verse 6, the angels warm up. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The reeds are placed to their lips. Verse 7, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. I mean, is this an asteroid? Is this a nuclear bomb? Did Iran make good on its threats? Did Al-Qaeda get its hands on a loose nuke? Some kind of firestorm is responsible for a third of the earth's trees and vegetation burning to a crisp. You know, it's estimated that the detonation of just a couple of dozen thermonuclear warheads could scorch an area the size of mid-America from the Appalachians all the way to the Rockies. A nuclear explosion compresses the humidity, shoots it up into the atmosphere where it freezes and it falls back to earth as ice. With that knowledge, understand verse 7. It explains the hail and the fire. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. I mean, with each of these judgments, with each of these trumpets, the judgment intensifies. These are global events that are going to rock our planet off its foundations. And you need to understand they're prophetic. God has written them into mankind's future. Here a third of the sea would amount to all the oceans except the Pacific and the Indian. They'll be destroyed, contaminated. In verse 8, John sees a great mountain burning thrown into the sea. Again, is this an incoming meteorite? What NASA calls an NEO, or a near-Earth object? Did you know that in June of just this past year, an asteroid the size of an office cubicle sailed past the Earth 23 times closer to us than the moon? That was a near miss. Currently, NASA is tracking as many as 4,000 of these projectiles streaking through space. The next near miss of a sizable asteroid is due in February of 2013. That should comfort you, put you to sleep tonight. I mean, recently, a National Geographic special referred to these near-Earth asteroids in biblical language. They called them mountains tumbling through space. When I heard that, I thought of John. Donald Yeomans, an astronomer at the NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, he made this statement. Space is filled with objects that threaten Earth. Earth runs its course about the sun in a swarm of asteroids. Sooner or later, our planet will be struck by one of them. Seems that even now, it's as if God keeps firing shots across the bow of our planet in order to encourage us to repent. In verse 10, Another trumpet blast. Then the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven. Here again, this Greek word translated star is astera, or from which we get our word asteroid. It refers to any kind of heavenly body. Here it plummets, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is wormwood, which means bitterness. He says a third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Whatever this star is, it has a devastating effect. It contaminates a third of the world's fresh water supply. 
I mean, a third of the vegetation gets scorched. A third of the oceans are ruined. Now a third of the fresh water is contaminated. Then the fourth angel sounded and a third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine and likewise the night. We think, what could cause that? Once again, the impact of a giant comet or a meteorite could tip the earth further off its axis. Somehow alter its orbit and reduce our sun exposure by a third. That's a possibility. There's another way to think of this catastrophe. At times, you know, the Bible, as we do, uses the language of observation. It speaks of a phenomena as it appears to the viewer. You know, often we'll speak of a sunrise or a sunset. Sunrise or a sunset is caused by the earth's rotation, not the actual rising or setting of the sun. But it appears to us as if the sun rises and the sun sets. Here it could be that some obstruction, maybe a thick cloud perhaps, blocks out a third of the sky above the earth. Verse 13, And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. As if what's happened before is not enough. He says to the inhabitants of the earth, Beware. You ain't seen nothing yet. Three more shrill trumpets remain. What a contrast. In heaven the angels sing, Holy, holy, holy. While on earth they say, Woe, woe, woe. Chapter 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Now this is a different kind of star. You notice from the next line, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Notice this star is a him, not an it. And from what he holds and by what he does, he seems to be another angel. Notice too, the angel here is a star fallen. We know from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that before Satan sinned, he was once an angel, the angel Lucifer. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. We also know that Satan took with him a third of the angels. They joined in his rebellion. This fallen star, fallen angel, perhaps a demon, maybe even Satan himself, we're told he opened the bottomless pit and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. I mean, he lifts the lid on hell. And a flume of hot smoke laced with burning embers billows into the air. Apparently in hell, you get no choice. A non-smoking section doesn't exist. It's smoking for everybody in hell. And this angel has the key to the bottomless pit. This is the place of eternal torment spoken of in Luke 16 when Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You remember Lazarus died and he was comforted in paradise whereas the rich man, he died and he went to the place of flame and thirst. Here the demon unlocks the pit of torment where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And when he does, it's like opening up a Pandora's box of evil. 
Verse 3. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green thing, or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, those 144,000 Jewish witnesses that we talked about in chapter 7. Notice those, these are not your run-of-the-mill average-style locusts. Normal locusts, they eat their veggies. These guys lay off the greens and feed on men. These are a hellish locust. Verse 5 says of these creatures, And they were not given authority to kill men, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. Now many Bible teachers, they believe that these locusts were the demons who sinned in Noah's day. Genesis suggests that they polluted the human gene pool by having sex with the daughters of men. Their perversion was so rampant that God had to wipe out all of humanity and start over with the family of Noah, with his genealogy. Jude refers to these demons as, quote, the angels who did not keep their former domain. They crossed forbidden boundaries. They raped and pillaged and abused. These were hardcore felon-type demons. And God locked them up in maximum security for 4,000 years. 2 Peter 2 verses 4 and 5 tell us, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. This judgment right here. Here in the fifth trumpet judgment, God unleashes these demons for five months. Not to kill, but to torment. Here are a pack of perverted demons driven by lust. They've been in lockdown for four, for four millenniums while their hatred for mankind has done nothing but brew and seethe. Imagine releasing every death row inmate in the world, the vilest of criminals, men with no conscience and with nothing to lose. That would still look like a pack of Boy Scouts compared to this devilish gang. You know, this is why it's so naive to talk glibly about enduring the Great Tribulation. Oh, I won't give my life to Christ now. I'll just go through that period of time. I can give my life to Him then. Can you? Do you really want to subject yourself to the judgments and torture? I mean, this will be a horrific time in history. People will fear going to bed at night, just laying down and closing their eyes. I mean, so what if you go survivalist mode? And you hoard up food. And you stockpile weapons. And you install a security system in your house. How do you protect yourself against demons? Reminds me of the guy who jumped into a cab one afternoon. After a while, he tapped the driver on the shoulder to give him some directions. But as soon as the man, the driver, felt the tap on his shoulder, he lost control of the car. Started swerving all over the road. He shook him up. Well, the passenger, he apologized. The driver later explained, he said, Man, I'm sorry, but this is my first day driving the cab. For the last 20 years, I've worked for the funeral home driving the hearse. <laughs> I understand that. Well, it, it, you know, it's also a bit unnerving. It's a bit frightening here when all of a sudden, hell taps mankind on the shoulder, on our collective shoulder. Verse 6 says, In those days... Men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. These demons will see to it that life is worse than death. 
Attempted suicides will skyrocket. Folks will want to die, but death takes a holiday. Imagine people will blow their brains out yet refuse to drop dead. They'll walk around like zombies or something with self-inflicted wounds. The zombie apocalypse will become a reality, not just a sideshow. John describes these awful demons in verse 7. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And they had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months. The Renaissance concepts of gargoyles and centaurs aren't far off from John's description. These demons are predators dressed for combat. Their chief purpose is to hurt men for five months. Now, let me ask you. Have you ever said to another person, you just go to hell? Have you ever said that? Have you ever said, well, to hell with that guy? I'll bet after chapter 9, you might just want to take that back. Hell and its belching smoke and its locust torturers are nothing trivial, my friend. God's judgment is serious business. Of course, you might not have been so profane. You, You might have just prayed, Lord, give him what he deserves. You were thinking about hell, but you didn't say it. But with each trumpet blast, you might want to think again. For even the hardest prosecutors, even the tough on crime bunch, seldom have the stomach for judgments this stern. Oh, we like to talk about justice. But when we see what justice looks like for billions of brazen sinners who shake their fist in God's face, we might have some pity. It's like whenever somebody asks me about the death penalty. Pastor Sandy, do you believe in the death penalty? I say, yes, as long as it's not my son. Here, after reading of mankind's hideous plight, I, for one, am not so quick to rush the world to judgment. If a little mercy now might cause a few folks to avoid God's terrible wrath, then, hey, my cries for justice can wait a while. How about yours? Well, verse 11 takes us back to the gates of hell. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Both names mean the destroyer. And of course, this is how Jesus refers to Satan in John chapter 10. The Lord calls the devil a thief who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. Always remember, it's Jesus who comes that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Verse 12, one woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. These angels are also demons. They're chained for this very purpose. They're the baddest of the bad. And they're angry. 
So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. You remember the pale horse of famine in Revelation 6 verse 8 killed a fourth of the earth's population. Now a third of what's left are killed by these angels. God's judgments are thinning out the rebels. In verse 16, these four angels, or perhaps demons, they take control of a vast army. We're told now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 200 million. That's quite an army. 200 million troops. Now some folks go to great extremes to suggest current parallels. Maybe these are the Chinese. Maybe these are the alliance of some kind of confederacy of nations. Perhaps. But I don't think that's the point. It just seems to me that in the midst of all the destruction, the world will be in the mood to fight. The whole world will want to fight. This huge army will gather. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now these horses could be more than demons. They could be demons, but they could be more than that. Could they be a first century author's description of 21st century weapons and warfare? I mean, horses with metallic breastplates, fire and brimstone flaming from their mouth. Could this be F-16 fighter jets? Could this be John's attempt to describe Apache helicopters? Here we could be watching demons in control of a modern day army. Verse 18, though, gives another death count. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. And their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads. And with them they do harm. These guys do harm coming and going. It's interesting when an airplane discharges a chemical or a biological weapon, it releases a spray from the tail to keep from harming the pilots in the cockpit. Whatever John sees here does harm from both ends. Now you'd think... You'd think, by verse 20, the survivors would be on their knees, broken, contrite, repentant, pleading with God for mercy. Wouldn't you think that? Nah, that's not what happens. We're told, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not repent. That they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. They continued to follow idols and foolish, foolish things. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You see, this is the trouble with sin. It blinds you to your own stubbornness. They can place the antidote right in front of your face, but you become too proud to drink. I mean, even after all of this judgment, haughty men stiffen their neck and still resist God's rule. Can you imagine? Which brings us breathlessly, mercifully to chapter 10. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. 
and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. <laughs> that should tip you off to who this guy is. Make no mistake about it, this mighty angel has attributes that can only be applied to our Lord Jesus. Jesus has already been identified as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He sits on heaven's throne. He is the king of the jungle. Who else but Jesus shouts as when a lion roars? Verse 3 tells us, when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Here's another set of seven judgments, seven thunders. But we don't get to hear these thunderclaps. John tells us. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. If John didn't write them, we won't speculate. Why speculate over what God didn't reveal? You know, this is how many Christians go sideways. They fail to differentiate between speculation and revelation. Hey, there's enough that's been revealed to preoccupy me. I don't need to speculate. Verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven. Now realize this impressive sight that's before our eyes. This mighty angel has a rainbow for a crown. He wears a cloud as a robe. His face shines like the sun. His feet are like dual exhaust flamethrowers coming out of a hot rod. And he's got a book open in his hand. Now this should be familiar to you, this open book. For in Revelation chapter 5, the lion took the deed to the universe. Jesus holds the title to God's creation like a lamb. He paid for it with his own blood. And what did he do with it? He cracked open the seals that were enclosing it, that were encasing it. In doing so, he took possession. He was taking possession of this earth. The trumpet judgments were the seventh and the final seal. Now it's an open book. He's holding it in his hand. You know, it reminds me of the old man who met the devil one day. One Sunday, in fact, Satan walked right through the doors of the church. Of course, when he did, when the people saw him, they started jumping over pews. Everybody started scattering out the building as fast as they could. I mean, this was the devil himself. Everybody but this one old fellow sat on the front row. I mean, he just stayed seated. No panic in his face at all. Satan walked up to him and shouted at him. He said, why aren't you scared of me? Don't you know who I am? The old boy shrugged and he said, why should I be scared of the likes of you? I've lived with your sister for 50 years. <laughs> well, this world has been wedded to Satan for a long, long time now. He has a run of the place. Satan has a free hand to spread his mischief today. His evil is now firmly embedded in the systems of this world. But all this evil and all this rebellion is about to come to a close. 
On the cross, Jesus redeemed the universe that was under Satan's sway. He bought it back. And now with the breaking of the seals and the blowing of the trumpets, he reposed the planet. Jesus evicts the rebels and takes possession. And he ends up judging everyone who stands in his way. This is what we see here in verse 5. With one foot on the sea and with one foot on the land, our Lord Jesus straddles continents. Like a cowboy on the back of a wild horse, he saddles up a bucking planet. He's going to break it. With one hand, he holds his proof of ownership, this open title deed, this scroll. With the other hand, he now raises it as if to take an oath in a court of law, in the court of God. Verse 5, he raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Only Jesus can promise to finish all the promises. And here the Lord takes a solemn pledge. He raises His hand and He swears by it. He takes a pledge to solve the mystery of the ages. And what is that? That there should be delay no longer. Isn't this the great mystery that perplexes people today? Isn't that, this is what keeps you up at night? Isn't this what bugs you the most? I mean, God, why do you delay? Why do you wait to establish your kingdom? God, why have you tolerated evil so long? Why, does, why do you listen to these continual lies being told about you? God, why does sin go unpunished? Why is Satan allowed such a long leash? Why do you put up with him for so long? Why, God, do you wait to set the earth in order? Well, by this point in the drama, the issue is really a mute point because the delay is done. The judgment has begun. But what about John? He needs an answer to this. For after this vision, he'll go back from the future to the island of Patmos. And 2,000 years of inequity and injustice will await him and the church he represents. He needs an answer. Why this delay? Well, the Lord Jesus does reveal to John the mystery of his delay. But he does it in a most unusual way. You think John would sit down, or Jesus would sit down with John, and he would provide him a reasonable argument. That they would just talk it out. That he would communicate rationally and objectively. But that's not what he does. Instead, Jesus communicates the reason of his delay viscerally. Not rationally. Viscerally. He wants John to feel why he, why he has delayed. In other words, he, he communicates to John by hitting him in the gut with the truth. He does a work on John's heartstrings. Have you heard it said, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach? Have you ever heard that? You know, sometimes men are communicated with not necessarily rationally, but viscerally. 
emotionally, through their taste buds. Well, that's the strategy that the Lord Jesus uses on John and us at the end of chapter 10. Notice verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me and to John, being John and to us, again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And so I went to the angel and I said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. And I will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. Here is what I call the revelation realization. John's experience at the end of chapter 10 is the whole point of this book. If you take the revelation as nothing but a futuristic prophecy, you have missed the whole point. For this book is more. This book is motivation for our lives today. It's more than charts and timelines. It's a lifestyle. It needs to hit you in the gut this morning. As a child growing up, my favorite candy was Zots. Ever had a Zot? Truth be known, it's still my favorite candy. Zots, they have this sour, fizzly center that's encased with the sweet outer shell. You stick it in your mouth and you start out by sucking on sweetness. But after 90 seconds or so, I've timed it. A sour explosion just bursts in your mouth. It shocks your taste buds. Zots is the ultimate sweet and sour experience until we reach the book of Revelation. Until we read this book. At first, when John eats this book, it produces a sweet taste in his mouth. But as he digests its implications, and he tries to stomach what all this means, the initial sweetness gets replaced with a bitter bite. What tasted like honey goes on to cause a bad case of heartburn. Now, of course, nowhere does the FDA suggest that we add ink and paper to our daily diet. John's experience was a metaphor For we too need to eat up the revelation. We need to read and study and grasp the full implications of this book. Hey, we should dwell on Jesus. Not as He once was, but as He now is and will be. We need to celebrate His role as King of the jungle. That He'll tame the rebellion and evict the usurper and right all the wrongs. We need to embrace Jesus as the King. And initially, this produces a sweet taste. Imagine when King Jesus kisses away our pain and our fears finally end in His loving embrace and the burdens we've carried for so long roll off our shoulders for the last time and He welcomes the weary traveler home. Imagine that day. Who among us isn't excited about the second coming of Jesus Christ? But when you mull over what this means for humanity as a whole, and members of your family, and your friends in particular, and your acquaintances, and your co-workers, and people that you meet every day. It becomes hard to stomach. It creates some heartburn. Oh, we're quick to condemn to hell the nameless driver who cuts us off in traffic. But one day, hell will be unleashed on the people that we love and that we know. And yet people who have refused to yield their lives to the authority of Jesus Christ. 
If you read Revelation and then lay your Bible down and resume your normal activities, go back to your TV or to your video game or to your Pinterest, then you just don't get it. You need to understand that Revelation, it should hit you gutturally. It should hit you in the gut. When it hits you, you know it. You realize what's at stake for you and for others. John records his reaction to his sweet and sour experience in verse 11. (coughs) He says, And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. In other words, John, you need to keep at it, man. You need to keep preaching the gospel. Keep sharing the truth. Keep sticking with it. When the revelation, realization hits you, you'll know it. You'll worship and praise the Lamb who is worthy. You'll serve to win crowns. You can lay at His feet. You'll worship and you'll praise this King of kings. You'll demonstrate God's grace to the lost neighbor. You'll sense an urgency to share with Him the gospel. You'll meet a need. You'll heal a hurt in Jesus' name. You'll pray for a world barreling toward judgment. You'll even be patient with the folks who mistreat you. Why? Because you know their judgment will come. It's mercy they need now. You'll have some tolerance for others. The revelation, realization will keep you pressing on and meeting together and encouraging one another. Oh, it's been said, without tears, the revelation was not written. Neither can it without tears be understood. And I agree. God is wanting John to feel what he feels. God takes no pleasure, no personal pleasure in our judgment. His thoughts are also sweet and sour. Oh, He loves us. He loves His creation. But He hates sin. And His holiness requires its judgment. I hope we get it. Ironically, the book with this bizarre, with all this gnarly content, is the most practical book in all of the Bible. For no matter how you interpret the locust and the burning mountain, the point is this. Jesus wins in the end. He crushes His enemy and He eliminates all opposition. This means that Satan is on the outs and Jesus is taken over. And if you're smart, you'll join Team Jesus today while you still can. And if there's anyone else out there you want to bring along, you'll go get them. Father, thank you for your word today and for your love for us. Lord, thank you for this needed reminder of what this book is all about. How practical a message, how powerful a message. Lord, these things are real. These judgments are are true and right. And they're sure. They'll come about. You've taken an oath. You've swore on it. You've written it into our future. Lord, we don't know when. We're foolish to set times and days. And... But Lord, we need to take heed to these warnings. For one thing we know, you'll win in the end. Jesus is king of the jungle. Lord, I pray that we'll all be on his team. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be committed. We'll recommit ourselves today to go out 
and to warn those who need to be warned and love those who need to be loved and preach to those who need to hear. Lord, I pray You'll give us an urgency in our hearts today. Lord, there should be a sweetness in our mouth, but there should be a bitterness in our belly. I pray that we would take to heart Your Word today. In Jesus' name, Amen.